been over a year since the last episode, but finally we're back. Welcome to the resurrection of Moon Studies. In this episode, I talk to Jeff Martel, writer, philosopher, filmmaker co-host of the incredible podcast Weird Studies and author of the remarkable book Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice. In our conversation we touch upon art, courage, morality, the end of the world and the polarising phenomenon of Jordan Peterson. I hope you enjoy. So I present to you, Jeff Martel. Thanks, Jack. I'm very glad to be here. Um, we had a, you know, we met last year, and it's good to to follow up because you've been to, you've been up to a lot. So it's been nice to to catch up with you, and I'm glad to have this time to to discuss these things. Yes, definitely. And and firstly, Jeff, um, a, a friend of mine um, is a um, anti nuclear weapons activist, um, and it's quite interesting because when he was at COP26 um, with me, attempting to kind of push forward more um, the message about nuclear weapons and about what um, what kind of the threat they're posing. But what what interested me was that that my response, and I think the the response of quite a few people when he was pushing this was kind of like that the message that he was trying to push was quite dated, and it almost felt like him being an anti-nuclear weapons activist was something like out of the 80s the 90s um so it's but it really interested me that the threat is still there and it hasn't gone away but for some reason in the collective psyche it feels like it's shifted um so do you think that we we have that climate change is a kind of that nuclear weapons has mutated into climate change as a, as a threat or do you what, what what is your take on that i i um <clears throat> That's a great question. Um, you're right. I mean, when I was growing up in the 80s, so I was born in 1977. So I turned 10 in 1987. It was still the world, uh, the, the Cold War was still raging and it seemed to be raging forever. Only two years, two, three years later, it was done. It was over, or it seemed at least a particular aspect of it was over. Um, and uh, so I remember the fear of, you know, nuclear holocaust i remember that fear very well very very well i remember playing role-playing games in the 80s that were all about you know post-apocalyptic society and how we would survive and live after the after the bomb you know after the world war three so and then after a, a short period of of uh of kind of um exaltation you know after the fall of the of the berlin wall and of the soviet union and all that then slowly the climate um the climate fears started to become come to the fore so um what i'm saying now has nothing to do with whether or not uh, climate change is a real problem i think that this is very quite clear that the data is quite clear on that that, that climate change is a real problem but our um, our fears are always motivated in 
the consequence of a problem. So we fear climate change because it means the end of civilization. It means the end, potentially the end of the human race, the end of numberless species. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a catastrophe on the global scale. It's a hyper object as Timothy Morton would say. And so the fear is of the same we're fearing the same event, you know, but now it's the threat, the nature of the threat has changed. So we've gone from imminent nuclear annihilation to uh, imminent climate catastrophe. Um, the nuclear weapons threat is still there, uh, but that's not the form that what my friend Phil Ford, my co-host on Weird Studies, calls it's not the form that the fear takes now. Um, Phil and I kind of developed this idea in one of the earliest Weird Studies episodes. Fear and Phil wrote about it around the same time. Uh, he was writing about the fear in all caps. And he says that what happens at Hiroshima after the end of the Second World War is that um, a new demon enters the fray when it comes to Western industrialist civilization. Um, and this is a demon that feeds on fear. And um, he's speaking metaphorically, but you know, not maybe at the same time. And it finds its image, its, its, its birthing image, let's say in the mushroom cloud in Japan, over Japan. But then since then it morphs and it changes. And I think that, um, that uh, it's funny that we don't talk about the threat of nuclear weapons because one could argue that the threat is even worse now because um, the we-, we don't know we can't account for a lot of the weapons a lot of the the bombs have, have disappeared in, in Russia I know a lot of them were sold off or are unaccounted for so that's pretty threatening uh, that's pretty um, but. It's just that this, the narrative has changed. The narrative has changed. And it seems to me now, if I were to try to assess the narrative, I would say like that nuclear weapons are just one more symptom of the sickness of industrial civilization and what it's wrought upon the earth. But the real end game is climate catastrophe. So nuclear weapons feels more symptomatic than causal or um, it, it doesn't seem like the, it doesn't feel like the crux of the problem anymore. The crux of the problem is this industrial civilization as such, because one or not, when we talk about climate change, what we're really talking about is, is the industrial revolution. You know, we're talking about industrial Western civilization and that's the problem. And so how do we stop that? How do we change that? Uh, the, the climate change part is just the, the, the consequence of this. Um, so, yeah, that's my answer to that. I'm not sure if it's very useful, but it, I, I've always find it funny that no one talks about this or that problem, you know, the, how problems change. And uh, who knows, you know, maybe in, I don't think this will be the case, but maybe in 30 years, it'll be a different problem. In fact, there are other problems that we could be talking about. Um, one that I'm particularly concerned with is the colonization of the human psyche by uh, the forces of artifice. You know, um, I think that that's also an ecological disaster. It's just that we're talking about the ecology of the soul, not the ecology of the planet. But it's 
um, certainly if we're going to save the planet, we'll need, we'll need the psyche. Uh, and that seems to be the latest, um, latest target in their sights. And I feel, I feel that that's a threat that's overwhelmingly terrifying. Um, the idea that, that our, that our very thoughts and dreams and minds could be completely co-opted by the forces of the market. That to me is the ultimate threat worse than climate change because it it precludes any solution to climate change it removes any possibility of you know mm, yeah there's a lot <laughs> there's, there's a lot in there there's, sorry there's a, there's a lot and i i think um you mentioned um demon and and i think that um one of one of the i suppose um the, the power of metaphorical thinking i think is is really important and i think i had an experience to to to, to link to go from the mushroom cloud to magic mushrooms um i <laughs> had an experience um with magic mushrooms where i um came into contact with a a, a devilish being uh, or a demon um and again, speaking metaphorically, but what what um, what I kind of became aware of was was the wisdom of that um, that old saying that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And I think from that experience of magic mushrooms, I um, and by experiencing um, being in a state of being where I could feel. The potential for malice and evil within me was really really instructive and actually really helped me um, to see my own potential for evil and also to understand the um understand how different religions are very kind of strict on this and for humans cap cap capacity to uh to do terrible things and in my conversations with um christians and with um, Muslims in particular it was very interesting because I could see that their whole perspective on life was life is a test um, and that as a human being you'll be tested and then you have to face that day of judgment and yeah. I was thinking at being raised a kind of atheist materialist this idea of being judged on judgment day is a really terrifying prospect um, and I, I I kind of became aware that I think we 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 talk about free will in our society as something that we we want we like, but actually I think free there was something deeply terrifying about free will um, to the extent that you will be judged and your soul will either go to heaven or go to hell. There was something incredibly um, motivating about that prospect, and also um, this idea of life as a test. I think um, mm. this is quite alien to our to the cultural East that I was raised in, in a way. Yes, um, it is. Um, and you know, I was I grew up uh, nominally Catholic. Um, my family was not very um, devout, let's say, but I was a, I lived in a French Canadian enclave outside of Quebec, and so that means that. In Quebec, there was real push against the church, similar to what happened in Ireland. But here in Ontario, um, the French Canadian communities remained 
rather traditional, even after the 60s. So I grew up still going to church and serving as an altar boy and all that. Um, and I always felt this profound attraction to the rituals of the church and the traditions. Uh, it was, I guess I'd call it an aesthetic attraction, but at the time it was, for me, it was mixed up with my interest in weird stuff and in Ouija boards and fantasy and that sort of thing. Um, I just really appreciated that I actually lived in the world that had some of those some of those qualities that a world that, you know, the worldview that I was given at church was a fan of a fantastical in the, in the positive sense, like a mythological world that, that I, where good and evil had kind of objective existence. And there was uh, the promise of, of, of uh, more importantly than the promise of, of judgment and of real consequence. It was the promise of real adventure um, that, the, the world that I was raised in was a world where life is an adventure, precisely because there's the chance of failure and there's the chance of damnation. Um, and uh, then, of course, I grew up and I grew out of that religion and I, I went exploring. Um, I was into shamanism, at the, what was that word I wouldn't use anymore, but at the time, that's the word I was using. Uh, Buddhism, philosophy, uh, the occult, magic, um, and eventually ended up coming back to to uh, Christianity, um, kicking and screaming, really, to be honest. Um, I didn't want to go back there, and it was a series of weird things that led me back there, and uh, and it was the last thing I expected, but, but there I was, and so now I look at things through that lens. And, um, and to me, this idea that life is a test and that there is judgment, yes, it, it can be extremely terrifying. And I think that insofar as your life matters, it should be terrifying. Um, the stakes are really, really high as climate change is making it very clear to all of us right now. Um, and there is a moral axis, I think, to the real that we deny at our own peril. Uh, this idea that morality is just a projection on our part, that values are simply projected by the human psyche, which actually exists in a knowably neutral, default, secular, uh, valueless, objective universe is just, uh, I, I, I find some, that's, the, that's the, the most comforting news in the world. You know, it's, it's been seen as this brave stance against religion, but in fact, it's the most comforting thing in the world to think that you won't be judged, to think that you can, that, you know, nothing really matters in the end. Uh, that's what all of us have always wanted to believe. Um, the only problem is that we end up in a world that looks a lot like the one <laughs> we can see looking out the window, a world that's destroying the planet a world that is completely obsessed with cons consumption and, 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 and rapacious uh, plundering, not only of the planet, but of cultures, of psyches. And so I think now that there is an increasing awareness among people that that moral axis, that, that vertical uh, axis 
crosses the horizontal world of things being just what they seem to be or things that as science kind of apprehends them is that, that the need for that access is becoming increasingly clear to people. And uh, it seems like we're wanted or not, you know, our grandchildren, uh, you know, maybe not mine, but certainly your grandchildren, I think will be religious again. Now, whether they'll be Christians or Muslims or Jews or something new, I don't know. But um, I have no doubt that the only way out of the situation is the affirmation of the moral axis that secular civilization has wanted nothing so much as to completely deny and take out of the picture. Yeah, I think that that's something that I suppose I'm trying to 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 re-evaluate in, in my own life, and I guess the um, what it's something that potentially the moral access that we would call conscience, and I think that yeah, that's that's what I've been increasingly realizing that the 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 psychological reality of religion and how something like the Old Testament God. I think I believe that they have a psychological reality, um, and I think that that's something that um, uh, the thinking of Jordan Peterson's actually. I think he's some of the good that he's done has been to uh, reappraise that more access and to um, to restore the importance of courage. Um, and I think that there's a fantastic article by Jairus on Dreamflesh about um, Jordan Peterson called "The Hero in the Dark Forest." Um, where he he kind of he unpicks the um, ecological flaws in Peterson's thinking because I think Peterson goes too far on the individualistic side. Um, yeah, but I think that what what one thing he is doing is bringing back that idea of courage and the heroic ideal that religions convey that and, I think in our modern society we've lost. And honor, you know, do you want to talk about obsolete values? Honor. Uh, one of my favorite, you know, contemporary philosophers, Tamler Summers, he's a co-host of uh, the Very Bad Wizards podcast, wrote a book about honor um, and rehabilitating that value, uh, courage, responsibility, honor. Yeah, like Peterson brought all that. And it's it's been very strange to watch how he's been treated. I mean, I agree. There's, a, there's plenty to, to object to in what he's saying but certainly nothing to warrant the type of reaction he's received among liberals. It's really actually scary to see how he was treated and to see how many others are treated. Um, Jairus, I have tremendous respect for, and I, I, love, I loved Jairus's article on Peterson because he does point to what has always bothered me in Peterson's discourse. But the point, the point I think the point you're making is that Peterson is bringing back a psychological apprehension of the religious such that whether or not we believe in this or that religious claim, we can all agree at least that the religious dimension is a psychological necessity for human beings, that human beings operate in a kind of religious way psychologically, um, regardless of whether the claims of religion have any ontological ultimate um, truth value to them. And I have, I, I'm very sympathetic to that. I, I totally agree. Um, but once you've made that step, then the question of what reality is uh, rears its head again. And it's not so obvious anymore. If reality is best approached as a kind of 
place of values and meaning as opposed to a kind of neutral field of, 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 of kind of material phenomena, then why are we holding on to this secular idea that there's the secular idea that there is this value neutral space outside of our psychological um, reality? It doesn't seem to make much sense anymore. So it seems to me that what Peterson, and Peterson's basically drawing on Carl Jung there, right? A lot. I mean, he's essentially Jungian. And so what Jung said was like, regardless of whether God exists or not, if you don't have a relationship with God, you're psychologically doomed. That's what Jung said. Um, well, then you have to, the next question for anyone who's interested in questions of ontology or metaphysics is like, well, what sort of world do we live in if we need a relationship with God in order to get ahead? Well, to me, it seems it's a world with a God. I mean, it's just, it's just that, that, that final leap from the psychological religious take, let's say the, the idea that, that, that religion has psychological reality or validity, that leap from there to saying that the universe is, is, is in some fundamental ontological way imbued with what religion is talking about is that's the leap that people are afraid to make precisely for the reasons you were saying, because people don't want to be judged. And, and I, I really believe that that's the case, that ultimately it's just that we want, okay, I can see how religion will be useful to me in a kind of William Jamesian sense, right? I, I can see how pragmatically I can engage, but I can't take it so seriously that, you know, I can always reserve this idea that when I leave the church or the mosque or the synagogue, then all of us or the temple or whatever, then all of a sudden I'm back in this kind of neutral space where no one's watching. It's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's just the, the crisis in metaphysics right now is a crisis is a, is one that goes really, really, really deep. And we don't really know what reality is anymore. And it seems like the last five years have told us nothing but that constantly, you know, through the Trump years over here in North America, that was pretty surreal. The surreality of, 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 of life has become increasingly um, hard to ignore. And so a lot of the comforts we took in the old idea of a secular society have gone. I mean, those comforts aren't available anymore to us unless we really kind of almost obviously, um, you know, uh, embrace what is uh, a rather artificial or kind of like, um, I don't know, propagandistic kind of view of things. So we've been pushed back into that dramatic place of each one of us confronting an absolute mystery, a radical mystery. And that radical mystery asserts itself at the level of the moral as much as it does the level of the, of the, of the, the physical or the psychological. It's, 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 uh, the mystery is so all encompassing that it encompasses all of ourselves. We're, we're, we're all completely called into it. And so the response we'll have to that will have to be some kind of religious response. And um, that's the great hope for me is that the crisis is so intense that it forces a religious response um, that will be able to um, take us into 
some new paradigm where a lot of the insoluble problems we're facing will find their potential solutions, let's say. So I, you could take everything I'm saying now and spin it into this really kind of reactionary uh, way. If, you, if one wanted to, one could do that. But I, I really am saying all this in the name of, of, in the hope that this is the way to um, achieve the ideals of secular society, you know, the famous ideals of the French Revolution, you know, fraternity, solidarity, and liberty. I really believe in those ideals. Uh, the question is how we get there. Obviously, the secular route hasn't worked at all. It's it seems to be um, acting now. In, it's a, an enantiodromio has occurred has occurred, and we've we've reverted into what what seem what secular society seems now intent on doing is is precisely the reverse, the inversion of these values. So, if we're going to achieve this, how are we going to do it? And it's to me, it's going to have to be through facing that moral dimension that we've wanted to ignore, opening the closet, letting whatever's in there spill out, and um, reestablishing a relationship with God. Now, I suppose for me, for me, this this moral dimension has has been probably the the biggest. Um, surprise to me uh, in my in my kind of spiritual journey um, quote unquote um, how everything has kind of just simplified to basically the importance of of courage really that I've I've um, I love in your manifesto you say um, the artist therefore needs enough courage to stay true to the work at hand even greater courage is required of those to whom the finished work is given for their interest will always recommend dismissing the vision for fear of its implications. And I think that that's, that's um, actually in the work of um, Alfred Adler, the psychologist, I think that he of Freud and Jung actually di diagnoses um, the psyche the best because um, he, he talks about this, the courage. Um, and for him, it kind of, the, there's, there's three, Kind of axioms to well-being which number one is acceptance of yourself um where you are number two confidence in others so perceiving the good in others and three community feeling um mm. and so and and for him and i think this is this is where he, um, he doesn't have the flaw which jung yun's thinking or peterson's thinking who's kind of classical union has which is he doesn't um, place the individual within the community and I think that that's um, where Adler's thinking and Buddhist psychology actually really align because mm. Adler sees the individual as a whole being within a community and I think that that's um, the Buddhist the, the Buddhist thinking and there's a thinker called um, Chogyam Trungpa who has the yeah. Shambhala vision um, and he talks about the cocoon and the the courage of the warrior of a peaceful warrior to to be able to kind of face the world as it is and have, have that compassion so i think of the three freud jung and adler adler's kind of the least talked about but actually i think potentially diagnoses the situation the best out of all three problem perhaps i i've i'm inexcusably un, unread and uh in Adler. I haven't read much. I, I read a little bit at one point. I've always intended to. I'm like, oh, I wonder what this Adler guy has to say. I know that he's a Nietzschean, essentially, that he, he really drew a lot on Nietzsche. And um, so 
if that's true, then I can speak to, about Nietzsche. <laughs> and, um, and I think that what Nietzsche does, which is so important and so crucial, is uh, he had the courage to go to the end of the uh, epistem of the modern. He was able to look at what people were saying in society, the claims that were being made, and follow them to their ultimate logical conclusions and to face the, the, what they revealed. Um, and uh, and um, it's funny because one could talk about Nietzsche as the ultimate individualist, and in a sense he was, but you're saying that Adler had a very kind of a communal uh, conception of the person, of the, of the individual, which I like. For me, my references there are certainly Buddhism uh, being the noble religious tradition that it is, is fully cognizant of the um, collective uh, or interpersonal dimension of the individual and the, the irreducibly interpersonal dimension of the individual. Um, but that, that, that thinking is also very much present in, in our Western tradition in Christianity. Um, the person, as opposed to the individual, like, and I think it's an important distinction to make, the person is inherently, intrinsically, fundamentally, irreducibly in, relational. Um, uh, you, you can be an individual on your own in a void, but you cannot be a person unless there is an other there for you to be a person to and with. Uh, personhood is shared, communal, uh, relational, and emergent. I want to say emergent because it, in a way, pre-exists, but um, personality is emergent uh, within a, a society, a group, a sangha, right? So um, that's what's missing from a lot of the kind of Peterson-esque discourse, I think. It's the, the emphasis on the individual and on personal courage um, is divorced from the intrinsic, uh, the irreducibly social aspect of personhood. That, that you know, in the Trinity, in the, the Christian Trinity, each of the hypostases, right, each of the parts of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, is called a, a person. Uh, these are the three persons of God, but none of them could be a person without the others, the persons to one another and their, their person to us, right? And so this, um, this is what's missing from a lot of the, the discourse. Um, and I think that uh, once you conceive of the individual as person, and once you conceive of person as irreducibly relational, then the the place of the commons, the place of our individual responsibility for the well-being of others, uh, the fact that we are judged first and foremost on how we treated the least among us, right? How we treated the other. Did we welcome the stranger? Did we reach out to the one who needed help? But that's really what one is judged on in, in, in the Western tradition. Um, all that makes sense. Um, and all of a sudden, the false dichotomy of left and right, which we've all been dealt with, I've dealt these days, and we're all supposed to believe is the final truth of political thinking. Um, the lie of that kind of becomes obvious. Um, I, I don't think there's anything more divisive and unuseful today than the, the left and right dichotomy. I don't think it actually exists at all. And I think that that's becoming increasingly clear 
And I think we need to get out of that. And, and uh, we have to realize that all the values that are hailed on the right as the ultimate values, let's say freedom and truth and, you know, um, uh, and the values on the left, you know, com compassion and equality, all these things are tied up together. And uh, only a kind of holistic, transcendent uh, valuation of our situation will allow us to create a polity that can actually satisfy the needs on both sides. And it seems to me that the vested interests at work right now just want to keep us separated. I'm not saying that this is conscious, some kind of conspiracy. I'm just saying the, the ideology prefers that type of irreconcilable division. Uh, it's more useful to it. So anyway, I'm glad that we have this chance to talk about, to bring in Peterson um, and, and talk about him in that context, because I, I really do think that if we stay in the old ruts, if we get, if we stay stuck there, we're missing out, we're missing a lot of what's going on. And I think that it's the, um, could be called the problem of the Nazi in our society, that I think mm. that um, Peterson's kind of been like a lightning rod because uh, I've actually got a really good a good friend of mine who, when I met brought up Peterson in and saying some of the good aspects, they were like shocked and were like he's a Nazi yeah. he's like the Führer he's like leader of the all right um, and we had a long discussion and conversation where I was I was just trying to say no he's not that there are there are some aspects to him which are are more positive. Um, and I think that that we have this problem of the Nazi where the the left um, have, and there was another, there was a conference, a left-wing conference where a guy said um, something along the lines of, we need to be compassionate, but if it's a Nazi, of course you punch them in the face. And I right. think what it illustrates is that the left in the kind of the shadow of the left is the Nazi. And then on the right, they perceive the left, the national socialist, socialist as as a nazi as well so we've got the left and the right who both perceiving nazis and the others on, on opposing sides and i think mm -hmm. what, what where jordan peterson's really um has been really helpful is that his whole psychology is about seeing yourself as the auschwitz camp guard and he's delved deep into that into the shadow and um coming to terms with your inner nazi and i think what he's activated is this um terrible father and wise king archetype that to the left he's he's become this terrible father um mm -hmm. but then to other people not either so identified with the left he's operated as a wise king with his messages of courage and personal and he's neither he's actually a Auschwitz guard <laughs> <laughs> by his own admission so it's that's the thing yeah he, he, he's made himself without meaning to he's made himself the kind of figure uh on which we can project these psychological needs of ours um and uh it's calmed down now he's it's simmered down since uh you know now he's got his podcast he's he seems now now like one of many of these intellectuals operating in the you know intellectual dark web or whatever you want to call it um, I find him very reasonable uh, right now and uh, very easy to listen to and and very interesting, actually. His podcast, he, inter he interviews interesting people. He has, um, so um, 
but yeah, you're right. You're that's a great insight. It's that's exactly what's happened. It's that for a certain set of people, he has become this 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 wise king, this this father figure who will, if one just follows them, he will solve all your problems and, and uh, forgive you for your sins and all that. And on the other side, he's seen as this terrible patriarchal tyrant who must be eliminated and. A lot of that is temperamental, you know, and I think a lot of left versus right wing politics is actually comes down to psychological temperament, as he himself and others have have, have shown. Uh, this seems to be become as close to a psychological fact as we can find these days. Jonathan Haidt and all that have shown how um, psychological temperament really dictates, in large part, what kind of politics you'll espouse. Which for me is all is that's the reason why we should always listen to people on the other side of the aisle because they they can correct us they can it's by listening it's funny because recently on Patreon a listener asked me how I could I had mentioned a podcast called Pints with Aquinas on the Patreon Extra Pints with Aquinas is a a Catholic podcast that I listen to because uh, Matt Frad the host he he conducts really interesting conversations, you know, in interviews with intellectuals and, and people who are in the Catholic scene. And I, I'm just, you know, being a Catholic myself, I'm interested in what's going on. I'm by no means a kind of traditionalist Catholic as Matt Fred seems to be becoming. I'm not of that ilk, but all the more reason to listen to him. Why, you know, and the question was, well, how can you listen to people who have these opinions? How can you listen to conservatives? And, um, and everyone has a limit, right? There's a type of discourse I won't listen to, but it's not particularly a right-wing discourse. It's it's a genocidal or hate hateful discourse I won't listen to, and that, that can happen anywhere. Um, but it seems to me that if I close myself off to anything that's been deemed conservative by the by the the, the spirit of my time, I'm actually just just wantonly refusing to pull to take the beam out of my own eye, as Christ said. You know, I'm not willing to listen to opinions I don't agree with because I don't agree with them. It just doesn't seem right. It seems like what we need to do now more than ever is listen to those who, whose opinions differ from our own, whose views are radically different. Listen to what they have to say. doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but hopefully uh, the act of dialogue will enable you to see the limitations in your own way of seeing. You know. Um, yeah. And it's what um, Adler brilliantly describes. He says that all problems are interpersonal relationship problems. Um, and <laughs> and it's, um, I think this is um, the, the, I think that, that, that we have, um, there is a father wound in our culture, which I think um, Jungian um, kind of psychotherapy has really, and schools of thought have really um, well explained and the problem of the pure Eternus by Mary Louise von Franz is brilliant. Oh yeah. And I think that what, what Peterson represents is this kind of, is this father uh, figure that a lot of, of men, I think, um, look, look up to and see, see a kind of wise king. But then also we have the Fuhrer, the father, the terrible father that, um, Adolf Hitler um, activated and, and, and Jordan Peterson also activates. And I think that um, for me, the, the courage, which is the kind of the principal virtue that I've 
seems to lead to the greatest reward that that in Adlerian psychology, the, the courage comes from um, having positive regard for other people. So that's, I think the brilliance of it is it's having the courage to, to open your arms and to say, I have confidence in you. And I think that yeah. that's for me is the, is, is the, what's so necessary is that I think that there is a kind of fear demon or uh, dragon um, in our society that makes us actually afraid of one another. So I think that yeah. that's, that's um, what there was a, I think there was a, um, a, a Jungian scholar who said, in the absence of the father, um, demons kind of come in and fill the hole. And I think that that's the case that in, in our absence from one another, the demons come in and we become scared of one another. And I think that's, if we can, yeah, yes. there's so much fear. Yeah, no, I, you're absolutely right. I think that, um, you know, just going back to that same general era that Adler was working in, um, Martin Buber, uh, great um, Jewish mystic philosopher, wrote a book called I and Thou. It's a wonderful book. I don't know if you've, you're familiar with it. It's a it's kind of spiritual classic, really. And, um, and I drew a lot on that book for the art class I did last year. And uh, it's just been such a, such a powerful um, text for me. And what Buber is arguing there is that there is a fundamental difference between an it and a thou. You know, <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. But what I've been trying to tease out or to, to, to draw out of his, his text and, and when I talk about it to people is the fact that thou or you, just to use the modern term, is really a mystical term. Um, you don't say you to anything. Uh, you don't say you to your bookshelf or to, your, to a tree although you can. And um, it's amazing what happens when you look at a tree and say you or a cat or a dog. Um, there's, a, there's a categorical difference between uh, its and you's. A you is not a causal thing. When I look at you and I recognize you as, as a you, as thou, what I'm saying is that all of the accidents of your makeup, of your being, like your what I see in you is not all of you. There's always more. There's something about you that, that exceeds and transcends your, your physical, historical, biological makeup. A person is irreducible to anything. When I take a person, a thou, and I reduce them to an it, I'm doing violence to that person. I'm not recognizing what they actually are, which is something acausal, transcendent, something that is beyond um, all that can be measured and calculated and controlled. What, when I say you, however, to you, I'm also giving you power over me. I'm, I'm not just, I'm seeing you as an other, but as an other that has the same right to exist as I find in myself. This, you have the same claim to existence, to self-existence that I myself feel myself to have. And so it's very threatening to look at someone and really see them as a person. Um, it throws you back right away into a religious dimension. There's no non-religious way of saying you, despite the fact that we don't realize it. 
um, the, the, the secularism of the last few hundred years has tried to convince us that we actually live in a world of its, that the you-ness of a person is just an epiphenomenal, epiphenomenal emergent thing. Um, and, you know, it's often even enlisted Buddhism to validate, to, 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 uh, to uh, support that idea, the idea of no self. But um, I think it does a grave injustice to Buddhism when it does that, you know, the secular ideology. Because I, I think that what we need to realize is that in order to have a world of its that can be measured and tagged, the world of I and thou already has to exist. That measurable place of its and, 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 and things that can be controlled is itself epiphenomenal to an I thou, a primordial I thou relationship that is the very context and setting for any type of interaction whatsoever between people, between beings. So that's the reversal back into the religious. And it's all, it's all, it all hinges on the, our capacity to recognize the other as, as an equal, as a thou like ourselves. And that's exactly what the, the control systems that are just proliferating today are making it harder and harder for us to do. Coincidence? I don't think so. I think that that's that the goal is to impose itness on all things, including on even our sense of self has to be turned into an it. And you can see that in the way that um, sexuality, for example, is being treated today as a kind of like it's kind of a service you render your body or something. Um, the body has become objectified, mechanized, instrumentalized, and that's happening on every level, right? So, yeah. I think Ken Wilber he called it the flatland, which I think is a really good mm -hmm. term yeah. for it. This um, objectifying, and I think there's um, there's a mystic philosopher called Douglas Harding, who I really like, who's um, famous for the headless way. Um, oh yeah, and that's his his writing is. Um, fantastic because he talks about how um what the the science of the first person and how the science science is fantastic for the science of objects but when it comes to us our own personal first person experience then there's there's this limit and science tries to flatten it and hence has kind of eradicated consciousness from from our um right but sure. but yeah, and I'm not. I know I've heard about uh, Harding. I haven't read any of his stuff. There, there's a danger at that end too, though. There's a danger at the non-dual end of things that ends up just Bernardo Castro rant. Castro. No, but the danger is that in in asserting the I, you negate the thou. See, like that's the thing about non-dualism. It's that it, it collapses the thou into the I or vice versa. So you end up with one thing. And that to me, it, 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 it's going, yeah, it's going right there. And then it goes way, it, it completely misses it. If you're not, if the thou is relational, if the person is relational, if the self is primordially relational, then um, any type of any attempt to collapse all distinctions into a kind of neutral consciousness 
is uh, the same as what materialism has been doing. It's the same move. You end up with a value neutral place. Um, and so that's, I don't know if that's the case with Harding, but I'm just saying that that's something I sense when I read a lot of contemporary spirituality, when I talk with people, it's like, well, I guess that's where I get a little uncomfortable with it and why I choose a more kind of orthodox way of looking at it. Because to me, it seems that if we lose the primordiality, the primordial nature of the relation between us, and if that relation is collapsed into, let's say, this kind of cosmic Atman or Brahma or whatever, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not commenting now on Indian religion, I'm commenting on how Indian religion has been presented to me here by non-Indian people, mostly. Um, it's, it, if we do that, then we're losing the dynamics of that moral axis. Then all of a sudden, nobody's being tested. Nobody's, there's no consequence. There's no adventure. There's no point. We're already there. So we've lost the, the what I think is we've 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 comforted ourselves once again by you know we're not facing the reality i think uh so so, it's a, so there's, you're saying there's a kind of escape in that but um yes i would the, say that there's an escape in that i think i think though um i would i would question that it's it's the same move as the materialist move because i think that uh, positing a kind of basic oneness um, I think that that, in my view, would would introduce a kind of moral axiom that if you are, if we're all the same, if we all share this basic source, then then therefore we should treat each other well because we are, we we share this this into being. Right. Oneness. I, yeah, that is, that is the, but I guess my question would then be, well, what's the difference between treating each other well, and treating each other badly? if all distinctions are illusory how do you distinguish between a good act and an act of violence if distinction itself is an illusion yes i think i think this is actually um <laughs> something that i pondered um that, that came up when i was on my um magic mushrooms experience because right. i i i i got um the, the 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 danger of lacking a an ethical kind of framework because if you perceive everything to be an illusion then this because i believe in in buddhism there's a there's a character called the devil king of the sixth heaven um and the I idea like is, is that they are um this is in the in buddhism and the idea is, is that they are high up and they kind of like to cause just carnage and like messing with everybody and and it, i really became aware of that there is this choice that if you if you perceive everything as to be a, an illusion you can choose to go the way of the devil king of the sixth heaven and just to decide to fuck with people because if if it's all an illusion then who cares or you can go for the route of the bodhisattva um mm -hmm. who's through the illusion but dis but has compassion and um and wants to help the beings and to, to alleviate their suffering so i think that yeah well i think that's i think that's central and that's the difference between um a venerable tradition like buddhism 
and the way that Buddhism has been used in the West in a, in a way, in a, in a sense, in a reactionary way to, to negate Christianity, to, 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 that's basically the, what's been happening. So there's a, a book, Evan Thompson, um, the son of William Irwin Thompson. So fantastic writer that I admire very much. Uh, Evan Thompson uh, wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Buddhist. And he is, he's a philosopher, but he's been working very really close with Varela and others uh, over the decades, really looking at um, the, 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 the correspondences between um, Buddhist anthropology and Buddhist psychology and, um, and neuroscience. And he wrote this book because what he realized is that the Buddhism that is assumed to be um, authentic in the West most of the time is actually uh, very, very different from the practiced Buddhism of the Asian countries where this religion exists and it has taken root. There's a huge difference between those things. And um, so... In Asia, Buddhism is in, inseparable from, and even in Asia, this has changed because of what's called Buddhist modernism, where a lot of Buddhism was kind of um, reformed in light of Asia's encounter with Christianity and with the colonial powers and all that. So a lot of this is even been brought back into Asia. But traditional Buddhism in Asia, um, if you look at Tibetan Buddhism, for example, um, uh, is inseparable you can't separate that out from like uh, ancestors and gods and demons and places of power and ritual and a moral axis like as as thompson argues um the goal of buddhism is redemption just like it is in christianity uh the bodhisattva's vow would make no sense in a non-moral world i mean <laughs> if it's all an illusion and yet they choose to stay, it's because there is a reality behind the illusion that remains somehow moral, um, that makes it incumbent upon those who see through the illusion, it, 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 it calls them to stay. Uh, there, so there is a here a, a sense that there's a form of love or compassion that is nirvana and is not just an illusion. Um, so if that's what Buddhism is, then Buddhism and Christianity and Islam are very, very close, closely allied. And, and I think that they, they, they do move in that direction. The problem I have is when um, the illusory nature of reality is held up in an attempt to counter materialism and also to counter traditional Western religion, but no effort is made to retain the distinction between the good and evil. If that can't be done, then um, it just, and, and yet you still, you say that you can act ethically because, you know, um, one should act ethically because if we're all one, then why would we be nasty to ourselves? Well, that seems like silly. I, I'm nasty to myself all the time. Uh, I'm not kind to myself. Um, so why would I be kind to, you know, like, it just seems to me to miss the entire point, uh, which is that there's nothing more real right now between the two of us, for example, than the distinction between us, the distinction, the fact that we're two different people choosing to have this encounter 
is just as primordial as whatever oneness unites us. The fact that we breathe the same oxygen or we're made of the same atoms or that we're both made of stardust or that we're both part of a little speck of dirt in the universe. All those oneness things are very real. Like we are one in many ways, but the distinction between us right now is as goes as deep as any, any unity that binds us. And so how do you balance out a world that is one and many at the same time? That to me is what Christianity has accomplished. Uh, and, and it's, it's uh, the, I, for example, in the doctrine of the Trinity, that's precisely what, what, what is accomplished in the Trinity is how you maintain unity and multiplicity together in this really dis, very precarious balance that is ineffably, ineffable and mysterious but if that mystery is rejected or if an attempt is made to resolve that mystery, we, we, you end up seeing one side and missing the other. You have to maintain that paradox and see it as a kind of um, a mystery that should be just affirmed as it is. There's a final question before, before we wrap things up. What's one thing that gives you hope in these quite dark times? Um, the fact that in my life, when I've had real serious problems, the solution never came, never took the form I thought it would. Things just kind of happened. And then one day I realized the problem had been resolved. And there was sudden, suddenly there were other problems. Um, but that was okay because at least that's, that period had been traversed somehow. Um, it doesn't mean that one shouldn't work at problems, but the working at problems is just a way of, of, of in a way, working away at problems is just a way of, of praying for a transcendent solution that will, will reveal itself. So I believe that even the darkest problems, the, the biggest problems we're facing now, have solutions that we can't conceive of and one day we'll look and see wow oh that's been solved somehow like i really do believe in that type of strange synchronistic providence so i think that right now we're living out the consequences of 500 years of colonial industrial madness and um and we have to go through that but i do believe that there is more coming that there's other things too and i believe that for you know the dark clouds on the on the on in the east you know um, you, you, they're there but there's also this blue sky in the west and we have to try to always see if not the silver lining around the cloud then at least the blue sky behind the cloud <laughs> thank you for that thank you so Thanks. much for talking to me it's been Thank you, or should I say, thou, the mysterious person who I'm now in relation to. Thank you for listening.